Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. Opium. Uh-oh. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. <laughs> Cam, Cam is starting on a high. <laughs> yeah, good one. There's a good pun. Ah, yeah, I'm firing on all cylinders. Uh, but we have a, a an interesting film to look at this week. One I've heard mentioned online quite a few times. People have asked us to take a look at. And I'm glad we're finally here. But before we talk about the film, I think we need to introduce our guest. Mm. Now, I sent out invitations to our secret tournament on Spy Hard's Island. And no one answered. And no one answered. <laughs> And so now I was left sort of uh, dumbstruck on what I could do. No, no. We have, we have one man step up to the plate. He is the creator of the Kung Fu Movie Guide website and the host of the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast. It is Mr. Ben Johnson. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello there, Scott. Hello there, Cam. Yeah, very well. Thank you so much for inviting me on onto your show. Uh, it's it's good for you to be here. I'm glad you also uh, got dressed for the occasion. You're, uh, you're wearing your, uh, what is it, the, the ritual uniform. Absolutely, yes. Uh, for, for on the island. Ritual uniforms only here. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, it's like Bruce Lee, I'm not uh, uh, attending the, the morning <laughs> ritual in uniform. You're going to get chastised by some strange guy on the <laughs> yeah, side with a clipboard. Yeah, yeah. good stuff. Oh, well, yeah. let's before we get into the actual film itself, let's talk about you a wee bit. Now, I did sort of say at the top, your website, the Kung Fu Movie Guide, and the podcast you have as well. I, I guess from the sound of it, you like it some kung fu movies. Mm, yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, the so the website came first, and that was just through I guess growing up, just having a passion for watching martial arts movies. Well, initially getting into, uh, I think like all of us probably had that initial Bruce Lee phase and fascination that then led into uh various other hong kong action movies which was so you know prevalent and popular around the 90s and uh 2000s as well mm -hmm. uh and as we were saying earlier i think a lot of people's sort of passion for for that genre uh for some people it may be waned others it may have uh, sustained uh and uh, i think it's definitely it's sort of stayed with me uh for many years now uh, so yeah, just been writing about the genre for quite a few years. The podcast came about, gosh, what did we say? Eight years ago? Is that right? It's probably around then. So yeah, it's been running 2015. So yeah, yeah, it's a long, it's a long uh, time. That again was sort of an offshoot from the website in just arranging interviews with people that normally traditionally I would have written up as written interviews that then would have gone onto the website, and then. I guess because podcasting was becoming more and more prevalent and more popular medium, uh, it was easy to turn those recordings into potentially a show or an, at least a format or an idea for a show. Uh, yeah, and here we are, 90 episodes in, interviewed loads of my heroes. You know, that's the great thing about doing this uh, thing, isn't it, is you do get to speak to so many heroes, people I watched growing up, you know, and even a lot of the martial arts stars of, Today, um, you know, the likes of Joe Taslim or, you know, Scott Adkins or great directors like Gareth Evans did the Raid films, you know, mm. had so many great people on onto the show over the years. So uh, it's been an absolute 
privilege and a treat really just 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 doing that and, and chatting to these these people well i'm curious what if you can remember was the first martial arts movie that kind of you know lit the flame if you will yeah yeah i do know that so the big one for me was interestingly and related to what we're going to talk about uh it wasn't actually enter the dragon it was dragon the bruce lee story and oh. if you've seen that one, did you watch that? 1993, a biopic? Yeah. I mean, you know, it takes some great licenses with the truth, shall we say. <laughs> uh, but as an entertaining um, look at Bruce Lee's life and achievements, some wonderful performances, great fight scenes. I mean, as a kid, I was absolutely captivated by by that movie. Just hadn't really seen anything quite like it and then that then evolved into you know wanting to learn a bit more about who this bruce lee character was investigate you know what uh, some of his his movies and that then obviously then led into actually training and then trying to get into martial arts and trying to find a local kung fu school not easy for living in a small town like swindon which is where i'm from in the in the um, southwest of england uh, trying to find a kung fu teacher in Swindon's not easy, uh, but uh, but there we are. So yeah, so that sort of sparks that fascination really, and it's yeah, it's continued ever since. Well, I was actually going to ask about whether you'd actually gone and studied martial arts as a yeah you know, as a result of watching all these films. And I don't know if you you said you struggled to find a place in Swindon, but did you ever find somewhere? Did you get to train at all? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I learned, uh, got into a school when I was quite young and has uh, continued it through throughout being a teenager. So I did find a Kung Fu school, learned Wing Chun, learned a lot of the animal Kung Fu styles, uh, did a bit of kickboxing, just sort of gen generally dabbled in lots of different uh, different things, learned a bit of Wushu, uh, but it's, uh, it's very hard to do all the... Uh, jumping kicks and uh mm. when, when you're when you're six foot tall it's not easy uh to to throw yourself around like uh, the way jet lee does so uh learned that lesson pretty quick um but yeah i've always yeah i've always um you know had a passion for martial arts and particularly martial arts movies i suppose it's uh through osmosis it's a way of sort of pretending that you can <laughs> you know you're learning these these great moves through through the films maybe and do you have like a favorite era you know, you are like the expert at this point. You've watched so many. Is there any particular, you know, period or anything really that kind of jumps out to you in terms of like your favorites to visit or revisit? Gosh, that is such a good question. Um, I think because this is the beauty of martial arts cinema, I think in general, I mean, first of all, it dates all the way back to the silent era. <laughs> so it's certainly not a modern uh, phenomenon. <clears throat> and you know, the range of different movies that we're looking at here and the different slants that different regions and geographies around the world and how they interpret the martial arts film is super interesting as well, whether it's parts of Southeast Asia or what America did with the martial arts film in the 80s. I've got a real soft spot for those early Van Damme movies. But equally, you know, for me personally, I think if you're looking at a traditional what I would deem a traditional Kung Fu movie, a late night Kung Fu movie that you just want to put on and just watch some amazing fights, action choreography. Uh, you can't go wrong with those Sammo Hung films in the, in the seventies. <sighs> Warriors 2, The Prodigal Son, 
he was on such a winning streak across the late 70s early 80s his choreography is 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 really hard to beat and then even into his modern day action films that he then made with Jackie Chan in the 80s I think you know if anyone listening to this has not seen you know Wheels on Meals or Dragons Forever you know I mean yes rush out and watch those movies yeah so there's lo- there's loads to choose from it's hard to, it's like choosing a favorite child I'd say right yeah that that's entirely fair now I would say though I think you've proven your credentials pretty well when it comes to a master of these movies and that's probably the reason why you've written the guide online on them you're the you're the go-to man you know them all and there's a weird um sort of symmetry in what we're doing and and what your show and website are doing as well because as you say this sort of film it's not like a 70s or 80s invention it goes far back so do spy Mm. films they go all the way back to the silent era and we've explored them all the way back there as well but transitioning a little bit because the film we're talking about this week is a kung fu film but it's also a spy film now I haven't questioned you about this ahead of time. This is completely fresh. I've never asked you about this either. Ben, what, what's your thoughts on spy movies? Um, gosh, that is Hate a them. good question. Hate them. No. <laughs> I, love, I love a spy movie, but I'd say that um, my knowledge of spy movies probably don't, you know, there's not many sort of deep cuts there that I can, I can think of. Other than, you know, the immediate reference points, whenever you say a spy movie, in my mind, is James Bond. I mean, I'd immediately go to Bond as a, as a, as a reference point, as indeed, I think we will mention this, uh, the film that we're talking about today, which is uh, a huge James Bond ripoff. <laughs> yeah. um, so um, I do enjoy a spy movie, though. I've got to, I've, I've got to admit, and that's a resilient genre as well, isn't it? They mm-hmm. still, they still make good spy movies. It's, uh, it, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? I'm always, I always think in my head, you know, gosh, you know, surely they've reached the pinnacle of martial arts movies. Um, you know, they can't get any better than this. So then a film like Ong Bak comes out and you see Tony Jaa for the first time and you think, oh gosh, okay, they they have actually come up with something something quite incredible here. Nothing will beat that. And then a few years pass and The Raid comes out and it's, oh my gosh, this is uh, the most inc- incredible thing. And then a few years later, then the John Wick series suddenly comes. It's it's one of these uh, things that just never seems to die. It's constantly reinventing itself, and that's that's really exciting. And the spy movie seems, in my view, to do a similar thing as well. And I don't know if you you'd agree with that. Uh, it hasn't improved since the fifties. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All downhill. After, uh... <laughs> what are you into it? James Mason was the man. Who <laughs> needs anything else? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but would you count like? uh things like i guess uh like the born movies and that sort of oh, for uh, sure. that yep. sort of thing yep. yeah 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 i mean they really changed the game and even as you know it's a great outlet for action as well um but uh yeah and even you know i guess you could go into the real mainstream and look at what tom cruise has done to mission impossible movies i mean my gosh they just get more and more exciting uh, over the years so yeah yeah it's uh well, I find it to be a very flexible medium. I mean, you mentioned John Wick in terms of Kung Fu movies. There's also a spy element to those films. There's a clandestine organization, the, the tables Absolutely. running everything. Like You could analyze all the John Wick films from a spy lens, and who knows, Monday, maybe we will. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think both of our two genres are, are very flexible. 
Yeah, yeah. And it does lend itself to action as well in in many ways. And I think with with I mean, obviously the action will will probably vary as I guess the attention to detail, I think probably where Enter the Dragon. Well, it'll be interesting to get your thoughts on this, whether I don't know how highly I can rate it as a spy movie, but I can certainly rate it very highly as a as a martial arts movie. Well, I think before we get to that, the final question I'll ask before we queue up the film. As you said, you like the Bonds. You know, that's that's sort of your go-to when it comes to spy movies. And that is where a lot of people's heads goes to as well when they think of spy movies, especially Brits. I think sort of programmed into our DNA, like the, the notes to the Bond theme is basically our DNA structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for you, what's one of like some of your favorite spy movies? Like if you could name a couple that you could off the top of your head. Well, I find thinking bond films immediately i i mean i'm i was a huge uh daniel craig fan actually i know they always say that when it comes to bond it's the bond you grew up watching that you like the most and that would mean that would be pierce brosnan but i think pierce brosnan's films probably some of the weaker bonds definitely one of the were oh i don't know if that's controversial swing away (laughs) but (laughs) um but just personally in my in my opinion uh although uh goldfinger obviously is is fantastic there are some some good ones i just very much dislike die another day i think that's terrible um but uh if you look i think daniel craig's movies have been been uh been fantastic cena royale and skyfall i really enjoyed and no time to die how good was no time to die my gosh Mm -hmm. um so i i think he had a really strong track record there and also i guess it's the bond that represents the age that we're living through now again it's it's that need to constantly reinvent itself um to 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 make to make itself relevant to today's audiences and it will be really interesting to see what the next iteration of bond looks like it's obviously i guess they now need to start over and it'll be interesting to see um the other references around spy films, the obvious ones that I can think of are the ones I've just mentioned there. So I love the the Bourne movies, um, and I do like the Mission Impossible series as well. I think they're they're really um, they're really impressive as well. Well, it's serendipitous timing, really, because we literally just spoke about No Time to Die last week. So there, we there go. you go. We yes. put we put Daniel Craig to bed for his final time, and it was a yeah. lovely lovely journey we had for those five films. So I'm glad you liked them too. Yeah, you're a fan of the, who's your who is your favorite favorite Bond then? Well, I I've, personally myself, I think I have the same upbringing as you in terms of timings. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I I was a Pierce Brosnan guy, but I stuck to Pierce Brosnan. I was very much yeah. Goldeneye, Tomorrow Never Dies. You know, if we're speaking of sort of Hong Kong action films, you know Michelle Yeoh very important to Tomorrow Never Dies. That's, that's how I was introduced to her, actually, funnily enough. Um, so I think Pierce Brosnan is my go-to. Cam's is a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, I would say the best is Sean Connery uh, in his first yeah. three movies. Uh, but I would say my favorite, probably Roger Moore, just because he's the one I grew up with. So it's like, if I want to watch the best Bond movies, I'm putting on like, you know, the Daniel Craig Casino Royale or Dr. No from Russia with Love. But if I just want to have the hangout with Bond time, it's going to be a Roger Moore one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have a soft spot for those those ones as well. I think it's uh, yeah, it's, it's whether they've they've aged particularly well. I'm not too sure. But... Timeless, timeless, timeless vehicles. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I think that uh, segues us over beautifully because it's the same era as Roger Moore. Uh, I guess all that's left to say is uh, enter the cam. Tell us all about it. <laughs> oh my God. Um, yes, we are here this week to talk about the 1973 Bruce Lee epic. Enter the Dragon. 
Yes, we hear you. We're here to talk about it. Enter the Dragon. It's time to finally do it. Now, before we get to sort of the letterbox.com synopsis, I'm actually curious to everyone in the room, your sort of first experiences of Enter the Dragon. And Ben, you're our esteemed host, the uh, the master here in this uh, in this secret island, the Spyhards Island. When did you first come across Enter the Dragon in, in sort of your journey into Kung Fu movies? This was a really early watch for me, actually. This may have been the first Bruce Lee. The thing, it's hard It's hard for me to remember a time when I, I wasn't aware of Bruce Lee and his, and his films. So I'm trying to go back to that time. So I would have seen Dragon the Bruce Lee story where there are elements. There's a sequence towards the end where they recreate the mirror fight scene. Um, and I remember then seeing Enter the Dragon, I think was the first Bruce Lee film that I saw and actually being a bit sort of not disappointed, but like, what on earth? What was what was that? I think it was probably just because my cinematic tastes weren't quite that evolved at that age. Mm. So I was used to seeing, you know, 90s blockbusters, I guess, at that that um that age and probably expecting a similar cinematic experience that you've got with you know a big movie like dragon the bruce lee story and enter the dragon is a low budget movie by even by 70s standards it's i think half a mil was the budget for the movie um which is peanuts even even back in 1973 so you're dealing with that uh but also just the 70s aesthetic the whole sensibility the vibe of the movie it's uh you know it's a it's a it's a product of its time, isn't it? Let's be honest. Um, so I think there was a few elements there that sort of, I was like, oh, okay, that's that's interesting. And then I think once I then got into the Hong Kong movies of Bruce Lee, revisiting Enter the Dragon and then just, just absolutely loving it. I think I went through a period of just watching this movie most weeks, most months <laughs> growing up. It's one of the few movies I can probably recite every line from as well. Uh, and even to this day, yeah, I probably watch it like once a year. It was really nice to revisit again, actually, for this. <laughs> I, I'd only be impressed if you could recite the words from the film whilst also looking like your dialogue was off slight sync from yeah. your mouth while saying <laughs> yeah, yeah. it. Like, it's yeah. like a slight desync from what you're saying. A few moments like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We need an internet delay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> chucking the dial-up sound, uh, but yeah. like I'll, I'll chuck in mine real quick. I'd never seen this film, really. I'd wow. Never, I'd never seen it. This is a first watch, uh, which wow. for listeners you'll know that isn't a new thing for me. I'm a, an idiot, but I've now seen it. But we'll get to what I think in a bit. Cam, I'm sure you've experienced this dragon before. I did, and it was largely because of my friend Mark. I'll pay tribute mm -hmm. to him now. He was the one I've referred to dragging to some of the lesser Pierce Brosnan Bond movies. He didn't have strong opinions about what we went and saw as kids, whereas I did, so I got to choose pretty much everything. But I remember, you know, we would watch a lot of action movies, and at a certain point, we saw a movie that was very important to us, and that was Mortal Kombat. Mm -hmm. And... Mark fell in love with Mortal Kombat. He was a karate student. He, I think, got his first Dan black belt um, over the course of his life. Um, I, he had to stop training once he had kids and what have you. But um, he became absolutely obsessed with Mortal Kombat. And I remember they were doing a re-release of Rumble in the Bronx with Jackie Chan. And the way they marketed that movie was using the score for Mortal Kombat in the trailers. And Mark called me and for the first time in his life was like, we have to go see this movie. And so we went and saw Rumble in the Bronx and fell in love with it. 
and proceeded to see every Jackie Chan movie they re-released around that time period. Super Cop, um, Mr. Nobody, um, just the whole, or yeah, that's right, Mr. Nobody, and the whole string of them that showed there, Operation Condor. A lot of them were retitled, but nonetheless. Um, and I remember at a certain point, Mark wanted to watch also some other things. So after we'd kind of run the gamut of what our video store had to offer, by the time you're watching Jackie Chan's The Protector, you're like, I need something else. This movie is not good. And they only had for Bruce Lee a VHS of, it was called Return of the Dragon, but it's actually, I believe, Way of the Dragon. And it was like the dubbed, maybe slightly edited version they released in North America. And we watched that movie and it just didn't really connect with us. And we were like, huh, coming off of these like just unbelievable Jackie Chan films, the, um, you know, the, our first uh, experience with Bruce Lee didn't grab us. I guess I experienced Bruce Lee seeing him in the past as Kato because they did a two-parter on the Batman 66 show. So I would have seen that, but it didn't hold like a ultra, ultra strong memory. So I really regard Return of the Dragon as my first real introduction. Mm. And it was actually quite a space of time between watching that and then Mark and I just started exploring other things because we were kind of like, we're good on these for a while. Uh, And it wasn't until I think I picked up Enter the Dragon at the library and watched it and just really loved it and thought it was absolutely fantastic. But um, yeah, like in terms of like Bruce Lee, he was never one I went back to. And I think at the time I was a little snobby and I wouldn't have this attitude now, but it was like I was watching movies that were very much where martial arts movies were at that point in time, like that level of choreography with the Jackie Chan stuff of that era, that going backwards 20 years felt like going backwards 20 years. And so I didn't have as much appreciation as I really should have. But again, I was like a teenager. There's some real symmetry between both of you, actually, on in your experience with this yeah. film. Like you both kind of went in with strange expectations that maybe you shouldn't have had in retrospect, but that's what happens. That's that's totally fine. Uh, but like you were both sort of blown away with it over time, which I guess we'll get into. But for those of you who have never seen the film much like me, don't know what it's about, here is your letterbox.com synopsis. And boy, oh boy, is it short. (laughs) Enter the dragon, their deadly mission to crack the forbidden island of Han. A martial artist agrees to spy on a reclusive crime lord using his invitation to a tournament there as cover. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's that's the film, folks. We'll see you next that's week. It. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, to be fair, I, I appreciate the uh, sort of brevity there. Just straight to the point. Mm, yes. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I I learned a lot weirdly watching a behind the scenes documentary of this one. Um, getting ready for it. But I know Cam, you've definitely got the info for us, which we'll I'll swing to in a second. But it is interesting to sort of the Bruce Lee conversation. Maybe we'll have a bit more of it later. But like, I felt like I knew tons about Bruce Lee going into this film. And it turns out I knew nothing about him because I'd never seen a single Bruce Lee film. Mm. Uh, This is my first, but I'd seen him appear in other stuff. And I'd also seen like the, is it meant to be Bruce Lee in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Yep. That is supposed to be him. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that I've seen that sort of nod to him too. But yeah, like I don't think I was quite prepared for Bruce Lee until today, which I think we'll we'll get into. But Cam, I did sort of tease it there. Can we talk about how we uh, got to this dragon? Yeah, well, I want to get Ben to maybe set this one up a little bit. Just where was Bruce Lee at this specific point in time? Well, <laughs> 
the thing about the Enter the Dragon story is it sort of all roads lead to Enter the Dragon, but also the sad part part of the story, obviously, is that all roads sort of end at Enter the Dragon as well. Yeah. <clears throat> so you have a situation here where Bruce Lee uh, is pretty much on the cusp of becoming what he always wanted to be, which was bigger than Steve McQueen. Uh, the biggest action star in Hollywood. He is pretty much there with this movie. And the sad thing is, obviously, he passes away just, I believe, he passes away 20th of July. The premiere was in August. So, you know, just a month out from the actual movie. He did actually see the film before he died. So he did see a rough cut of of the movie when he was back uh, in Los Angeles, uh, he also met with Lalo Schifrin and did some work on the score. So he did see the movie, but it just was a rough cut. Mm-hmm. Um, so where he was at with, with his life at this stage was that all of his efforts and all of his energies had been channeled into getting a project together that would introduce him to Hollywood, to the West, so that he didn't have to remain in Hong Kong where he was making quite low-budget movies at the time. Although they made him a huge star, they made him a huge local star, whereas Bruce Lee always wanted to be a huge movie star. He always wanted that. He wanted the fame. He wanted the fortune. He wanted the glory. And this was his ticket ticket into it. So it is bittersweet in many ways, this movie. Um, also, it shows how much dedication he actually threw himself into this project. Uh, as well, which I'm sure we can get into the details around around that. Maybe to the detriment even of his health, of the way that he uh, threw himself into the movie. And I think he just knew that you know he had been denied by Hollywood for so many years since he moved there and was trying to break out. Yes, he played Cato on TV in the Green Hornet. He was second fiddle there. He had to wear the mask he'd had moderate success in sort of small tv roles and he was always trying to get that project off the ground and maneuvering and trying to get into uh you know meetings with the top hollywood execs pitching ideas uh auditioning for things but it wasn't really happening and for many reasons but the predominant reason being whether 60s hollywood was actually ready to see you know, a Chinese guy fronting a big Western American movie. Um, So Bruce Lee dealt with a lot of, um, I guess, sort of setbacks along the way. And that was why he then obviously made the move to Hong Kong, where he was offered a a two-picture deal with Golden Harvest, which then made him a really big star. Mm -hmm. It made him such a star that it then became almost inevitable that Warner Brothers would eventually pitch an idea to him because it, it was sort of impossible to ignore, you know, the the storm that he had created uh, through through his work by that point. Yeah, and so where I guess I'll come in is just talking about the producer Fred, uh, Fred Weintraub, who around the point where Bruce Lee is looking for like a big vehicle, became convinced that Hollywood could make a good martial arts film mm-hmm. because he recognized that there was a popularity. These movies were often screening in you know lower rent theaters and becoming very popular and so he persuaded warner brothers um to roll the dice on this to make a hollywood martial arts film and he met with bruce lee's production company concord about doing it and as we've said this was lee's first mainstream american film and 
Warner Brothers, they were interested in making this movie, but they really didn't even know how to market it. And so they were actually holding seminars trying to determine how to market the film to differentiate it from the lower budget dubbed Chinese martial arts films that were in all these lower grade theaters. So like they really didn't even understand how to sell a movie like this at the time. Whereas nowadays it seems so commonplace, right? To see a quick cut trailer and a lot of flashy choreography. But in 1972 or something, when they're working on the production, they're still baffled as to how to market this. Yeah, no, and 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 just further to that point, I mean, this was the first time that an American crew had actually been over and filmed in Hong Kong as well. So, you know, that's, uh, I know that there's co-productions do um, happen quite quite commonly now, but this was obviously the very first time that that had, that had ever happened. So, um, you know, and that brought with it all sorts, all, all manner of uh, complications, uh, shall we say. Um, but yeah, you're right. They were dealing with a new thing. You know, you've got to remember the Kung Fu TV series that Warner Brothers made, uh, which Bruce Lee auditioned for. Um, that became a huge hit early 72 when that came out. Um, so there was precedent for this. It was in the air. It was in the, you, you know, it was very much the zeitgeist of the time. And a lot of people didn't even know They'd never even heard the term Kung Fu before. That was a whole new concept to them. So Bruce Lee is right person, right time, but also the only person really at that time who really had, pardon the pun, the chops <laughs> to actually deliver the goods, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, whatever you think of the movie Enter the Dragon, you come away from it thinking, well, that guy's the real deal. There is no CGI in this movie. Bruce Lee is the star he's such a powerful amazing screen presence in this movie um you know it was almost destiny it was bound to be that this you know he was gonna gonna make it in this genre as i say right place right time mm -hmm. i mean i wouldn't worry your, your chop pun was better than my kick pun earlier <laughs> <laughs> I did a mental thing there. I was like, should I say that? But there you go. I said it. And there is an interesting, like, uh, strange duality going on at this sort of time because, you know, we talk about spy movie connections, which I'm sure Cam will get into, but you talk about what happened to George Lazenby at the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. He mm -hmm. leaves because he thinks that's, you know, spy films are out of vogue. And you talk about kung fu movies that start to become sort of vogue at this point, start to fall into it. And then a few years down the line, you've got George Lazenby and the man from Hong Kong. Yeah. So yeah. he he was kind of he sensed where that trend was going in a sense. Yeah. But unfortunately, he just probably shouldn't have left Bond. But yeah, that's a that's a whole other discussion right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. that was a Bruce Lee. That was a Bruce Lee movie, Man Man from Hong Kong, um, and Golden Harvest had set up. In fact, the day Bruce Lee died, he was meeting George Lazenby uh, for lunch to discuss him appearing in Game of Death which was wow. the movie Bruce Lee was going to work, work on afterwards. So yeah, he's, he'd arranged to meet uh, Raymond Chow and George Lazenby for lunch that day. And that was the day that he died. Hmm. Um, so yeah, and it's in, George Lazenby's career is fascinating. Really <laughs> he is. goes from Bond to then appearing in Hong Kong action films, um, which is, which is uh, fascinating. Yeah. And so like you mentioned Game of Death, but like I believe at the time Bruce Lee was developing Game of Death and he was co-writing, going to direct it and star in it and ended up jumping over to Enter the Dragon uh, because that opportunity presented itself. Yeah. Yeah. you got to remember in the early 70s, so things really ramp up for Bruce Lee once he signs with Golden Harvest. Then the big boss becomes this all big selling hit across Hong Kong. First Hong Kong movie to gross, um, oh, it grossed millions of uh, of dollars. 
big international success as well. Uh, that then enters Bruce into the into the stratosphere, and he's working pretty solidly then right up to you know the moment of his death really. Um, so yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Game of Death. He was filming once he wrapped on Way of the Dragon, uh, which he then got the call, I believe, from Warner Brothers to then go out and sign the contracts for Enter the Dragon around that sort of time. And then the filming took place in Enter the Dragon in early 73. So I think early January 73. Mm. Um, and then the filming takes place January, February, March 73. And then it was, or then, yeah, the next step for Bruce Lee then was to, well, what he should have done <laughs> Hindsight, twenty twenty. Uh, he should have just taken a rest and just taken a chill pill yeah. <laughs> for a little bit. Uh, but Bruce Lee, being Bruce Lee, uh, and I think the fact that he knew he had a good movie on his hand with Enter the Dragon, uh, he had been in the wilderness for so many years in Hollywood. I think he probably overworked himself at that stage. Um, didn't listen to his body and just carried on working. You're absolutely right. He then picked up Game of Death straight away. Um, to to then work on that, uh, yeah, and then you know, uh, the yeah, then he passes away then in the summer. So yeah, and so a little bit on the people working on the film as well. So the writer was uh, a first time screenwriter, Mark uh, Michael Allen, and uh, this was his debut. And he wrote the initial draft in three weeks, and he said basically from putting pen to paper and a film being finished, it took four months. So this was a very fast effort for him. And he does not have like a big filmography. I think only seven credits on IMDb. But he also wrote the Isaac Hayes movie, Truck Turner, which is a total blast. He worked on the 1980 Flash Gordon. And his last credit was the 1998 Jonathan Taylor Thomas film, I'll Be Home for Christmas. What a, what a career. It's a diverse <laughs> filmography. That's a roller coaster right there, isn't it? <laughs> that really is. And yeah. <laughs> the director, Robert Klaus, apparently only one director wanted this job. Um, I can imagine there would have been a fair amount of snobbery in the 70s about taking on a martial arts film. It happened with uh, 60s and spy films as well. Yeah, to yeah, totally. Same yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. And Robert Klaus is really interesting because he was actually completely deaf. Oh. And so he had a very strong visual sense and he had assistant directors with him to help him with like the dialogue. Um, and he was right out of the gate, pretty successful. He had two Oscar nominated shorts in the sixties and then made his debut with two films in 1970. He had um, dreams of glass, which was a drama and then darker than Amber, which was an action film starring Rod Taylor, who we talked about with the liquidator. Hey, good old Rod Taylor. Yeah. And this film was his follow-up to an episode of the TV show Ironside. He was also a screenwriter, uh, so he was doing screenwriting assignments kind of around this point as well. And he is someone who, after doing Into the Dragon, went on to do a number of martial arts films. He did Black Belt Jones, Jim Cotta, the China O'Brien series with Cynthia Rothrock. And he also finished Game of Death uh, after Bruce Lee had passed away and wrote the book, Bruce Lee, the biography in 1989, part of which was adapted loosely into Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Bring it all back home. Yeah. he got uh, Bruce got on well with with uh, Robert Klaus. I think he's one of the few people during the production that he actually did, <laughs> that he actually did get on with um, <laughs> because he had huge fallings out with definitely Michael Allen, the writer, um, and a 
big falling out with Fred Weintraub as well during production. So, you know, Bruce Lee was not immune to his own sort of diva moments, shall we say. But Bob Klaus, he got on with, he felt, I think he agreed on Robert Klaus directing because he could tell that he could be flexible on certain things. Mm. Uh, You know, he was someone who was open to suggestions. He wouldn't sort of close down Bruce Lee's idea. Um, so, so it, Bruce Lee, I think, felt that he was a good director, someone that he could work with. And you're right, his track record, um, you know, he's not the most flashiest of directors, but yeah, he he introduced Jackie Chan as well because he directed uh, the Big Brawl or Battle Creek Brawl. Uh, he introduced Cynthia Rothrock as well. Yes, the, the China O'Brien movies. Um, and he, yeah, he was he was the one who was put forward to direct and finish. Bruce Lee's unfinished uh, Game of Death um, to, uh, well, I don't know if you've seen that movie, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting one. It's a little bit of a, uh, I think, Trail of the Pink Panther. <laughs> hokey. Yeah, where it's kind of cobbled together, isn't it? Very much so. Yeah, yeah. It's got cutaways from Bruce Lee's other films as if he is sort of, uh, you know, acting within that film. It's very odd. Uh, it doesn't fully work. Right. That's like one of the outstanding ones i haven't seen because i'd always kind of heard that but i should uh complete the journey the last part of it which is the genuine bruce lee footage where he's fighting kareem abdul jabbar and danny nasanto i mean that is amazing you Mm. you suddenly just the film comes to life and you realize what's been lacking throughout the whole movie right Uh, a few other production notes uh rod taylor from the liquidator was um going to play the role that john saxon played in the film no way I could have had the liquidator in this film. That would have been great. Yeah, it did not work out. And I found various reasons. Part of the, I, I don't know, like, I don't know that's ever been hammered down specifically why, but one thing I saw that popped up a couple times was that Bruce Lee felt that he was too tall for the role and wanted someone a little bit shorter. Fair. Yeah, and and I think he wanted some, uh, John Saxon did have a karate, I think he's a karate guy. Um, mm. he He had martial arts in his background, so could you know, hold his own during, during the fight scenes as well. Yeah. And, um, during production, Bruce Lee is a huge star known to be this just formidable fighter on screen. And so a lot of the stuntmen and locals in the area wanted to fight Bruce Lee, um, (laughs) as a battle of egos, I suppose. Mm. And so Bruce Lee spent a lot of time having fights with people on the set (laughs) and outside of work, um, of Enter the Dragon and apparently always was, was victorious. I, that, that's that's the myth anyway that's the legend that's the yeah. myth yeah yeah but print the legend right yeah exactly Absolutely. to yeah. be fair like I, I i don't think i'd be surviving that fight no 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 not no. a chance <laughs> <laughs> you see how fast that guy moves oh god <laughs> i think a lot of the extras as well this is in robert klaus's book um were just employed because they have 300 extras in this movie so mm. a lot of them were sort of gangsters there was a lot of gangsters or people with triad connections or gang members so a lot of people that they were pulling in to to form a lot of the extras were not necessarily came from let's say uh, colorful backgrounds uh so yeah there was the odd challenge and like provoking of uh, of bruce and there is stories where you know uh, extras would shout things like oh you're not as good as you think you are or you know challenging bruce but he would always you know, and and uh, there is a story where he does actually call one of the extras down at one point and sort of 
shows off some of his moves uh, and quite promptly that would then have uh, uh, caused a lot of people not to uh, uh, shout back. <laughs> so yeah, there are, there are instances, there are stories on set where Bruce Lee was, um, uh, yeah, um, uh, yeah, showing off his moves for real, shall we say. I mean, I don't know the story behind what happens with Bruce when he passes away, which I'm sure Cam will get to in a minute. But was he mm-hmm. quite tense when he was shooting this film? Is there like, is there like a lot of pressure on him? Because that feels like feels like you're acting out a little bit. You could just say no to these fights. You know, it, it mm. doesn't have anything to prove, surely. Yeah, I did come across an anecdote where they said he was incredibly nervous um, about shooting this movie, just because I think all the pressure mm. of it being this massive Hollywood production. And he didn't shoot for the, like the first three weeks of production. And when he did, he was so nervous that it took them 27 takes to be able to get a good like take they could use. Wow. Um, but he obviously was off and running, you know, once he was plugged in. But yeah, it was a project that I think put a lot of pressure on him. And I think someone who you just think of like a Bruce Lee in the 1970s in Hollywood, what he would be carrying on his shoulders when you are dealing with potentially being a star. Yeah, I can. Absolutely right. Yeah, it's the same sort of mess I was in before uh, we hit record with Denise Richards. <laughs> like I was a yeah, just a quivering mess on the floor. Twenty-seven takes. <laughs> yep, that's that's yep. what the intro took for sure. We definitely re-recorded that. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, you're, no, you're absolutely right, Cam. And I think it, yeah, it's the culmination. You got to remember that you know he he's been waiting you know his whole life for this moment, and he's worked so hard to get there as well. That you know he he and. And he was someone who did, you know, put obviously immense, immense pressure on on himself. Um, and I think with just reason, he was nervous as well because, you know, this was unprecedented to actually give a, a Chinese actor such, uh, you know, a lead role in an American film. Mm. Um, you know, there wasn't really any, you know, he was sort of the first person to to do this. And, and he had just reason to be nervous that, oh, I'm going to be, stitched over by the american producers here you know someone needs to take control of this production or that his fear was that he would be ultimately shafted hmm. in the edits you know john saxon i know was co- john saxon really didn't think much of the production he got a holiday to hong kong out of it hmm. uh you know he didn't think much of it but i know that he was coaxed into it uh, very much as saying you're the lead here and if you look at the movie, he is the only character who has any serious story arc. Yep. You know, he starts off as a bit of a gambler. Uh, and then at one point you think he's going to be coaxed into actually joining Han and his operations. And then obviously he kills his buddy. Uh, and then he has that sort of emotional scene. He's the only character in the film with any, you know, uh, yeah, sense that, you know, as a sort of fully rounded character, even Bruce Lee had to really fight to add anything to his character here you know to add any sort of depth i know he fought really hard to put a lot of his own philosophy and his approach to the martial arts into a lot of the scripts none of that was there in the original script that michael allen presented so he was nervous but for just reason you know he he thought if if i don't really commit ultimately to this then uh, you know the project's going to run run away from him but i think as soon as the rushes started coming in and once he'd got over a lot of the, the the issues that he had particularly around the script and working with Michael Allen once he was fully on board um you know no one could deny what he was turning in was just was just magic so you know Warner Brothers then very quickly had to appease 
you know, to the to their star because they knew they had a winning formula on the, on their hands. Yeah, and they were looking to book him for a second film as well and pay him a million dollars. And then, of course, he passed away July twentieth, nineteen seventy three, of a brain edema, and so that obviously was never going to happen. Um, and this film premiered, you know, as um, Ben said, like less than a month after his death at thirty two. And the studio actually boosted the marketing budget for the movie because they realized that, like, the world wanted to see this movie. And so they really got it out there. And it was a big hit. The budget was $850,000. Domestically, it did $25 million. International, $65 million for a worldwide total of $90 million. And so in, like, 1973, that is big money. I'm trying to think, like, what that return is. Like, mathematically speaking, that's a very good, very good return. It's one of those returns like the original Halloween where you're just like, right. holy smokes, when you compare the cost versus what they brought back, just massive. And it's also had one heck of a legacy. So I imagine mm -hmm. like VHS sales, DVD sales, Blu-ray sales all throughout the years have, have really propped this one up too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the top three for the year, number one was The Exorcist, number two was The Sting, and number three was American Graffiti. Because this is the uh, earlier 1970s, it's impossible to find like a top 200 chart, but Into the Dragon did very well. It has to be sort of top 20 for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anything else for Cam? Um, A couple things. I'll just say like the success of this movie um, led to many early Hong Kong films being dubbed and re-released in North America. And with Bruce Lee's passing also led to a lot of other clone Bruce Lee films. So there was various actors, Bruce Lee, L-I. There was also L-E. And then there was also um, Bronson Lee, who um, had a Charles Bronson mustache and was Japanese. Oh, my God. I need to see this person. <laughs> There's Dragon Lee as well. Korea's, Korea's answer to Bruce Lee was Dragon Lee. He made some great films. Was there any gems in these films or were they all kind of disposable the thing that happened obviously as soon as bruce lee dies you've got the kung fu boom and its leading star is dead so what what do you do there you've got a massive void uh and these unscrupulous uh producers very quickly uh latched onto this idea of uh these what are now known as bruce exploitation films so are they any good? Well, uh, it it all it all depends what your tolerance levels are for uh, uh, for these kind of like trashy trashy movies. But uh -huh. one or two of the Bruce Lai films are actually quite good. I'd certainly recommend. He did a movie called Dynamo that was that was pretty good. A lot of these though were, you know, just straight ahead crime movies where they would take on Bruce Lee's mannerisms. Mm. But some of those movies were directly referencing Bruce Lee. So a film like Bruce Lee, The Man, The Myth is essentially a forerunner to many biopics that followed on as well. Um, but Bruce Lee, The Man, The Myth is probably held up as one of the better Bruce exploitation films as it, as it was quite faithful. And it was done, um, it definitely in tribute uh, to Bruce Lee and his values and what he brought to to the martial arts and movies in particular. A lot of a lot of the movies though are quite trashy. 
um, and they and as that subgenre continues throughout the seventies, they just start eating themselves. So you get movies like The Clones of Bruce Lee, where um, uh, the film starts with Bruce Lee is being rushed to the hospital, and then he's announced uh, dead at the hospital, oh. and they quickly take some of his DNA and they create these clones of Bruce Lee. This is a real film, by the way. Um, <laughs> and uh, Bolo Young is actually in this movie, um, <laughs> who's in Enter the Dragon. Uh, and they clone Bruce Lee, and then you have uh, Bruce Lair. Uh, I forget the other Bruce Lees that are in in that uh, in that movie now. So pretty pretty trashy stuff, but um, uh, that just shows, I guess, what a void Bruce Lee's death caused um, in the Hong Kong uh, martial arts film industry. Uh, people in the grindhouse cinemas and definitely overseas were lapping these movies up to the point where. A lot of those Bruce Lee clones have their own fan base even now. And even I have a soft spot for those movies, even though most of them are pretty, pretty terrible. Um, and that just shows really why, you know, Hong Kong cinema is crying out for a new thing to take over from Bruce Lee, which then, you know, thankfully we had Jackie Chan arrive, who was very much the antithesis of Bruce Lee, where Bruce Lee was very intense. Jackie Chan was more slapstick. He turned the joke on himself. He wasn't afraid to actually get hit a, a few times. Uh, and then that idea of kung fu comedy uh, started becoming more prevalent in the 70s. And then, and then you had the whole new wave then of, uh, of Hong Kong action stars. It's it's fascinating to to hear all this because this is all completely new information for me, and this is why you are the expert here, Ben. But like, if you look at what happened during the sixties, the sort of explosion of Bond copies, which I think I'm now going to coin the term Bond exploitation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's yeah. never been said before. I'm I'm patenting that everyone. Um, Bond exploitation as well. Like you got the Doctor Goldfoots, the Derek Flints, everything like that. All to the you know, OK Connery, all that sort of stuff. Where you got Sean Connery's brother playing Bond, basically. Um, all that sort of insanity that you get in the late 60s sounds like it happened basically again the next decade but for kung fu movies yeah hmm. yeah ab ab absolutely absolutely and there's a certain charm to those movies i'm sure mm. as a fan of the genre you probably enjoy seeing these slightly sort of knockoff versions not the goldfoot ones um, no depends the... depends <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, yeah so hidden miss oh, we mentioned the, the liquidator of rod taylor earlier so i guess that's all connected yeah. yeah, yeah, and just bringing us full circle, of course, 1993 Dragon the Bruce Lee story comes out, the origin story for Ben, and that is also the same year that Brandon Lee, Bruce Lee's son, is killed in a tragic prop gun um, accident on the set of The Crow. So yes, the uh, the curse of the Lee family continued. Wow, that's a, yeah, that's a, that, that is a shame, but I think we should celebrate a little, and let's actually finally talk about enter the dragon let's start the tournament loud and proud our first contestant our competitor in the ring is ben ben i want to hear from you 2023 you've visited enter the dragon many 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 times but what do you think of it in the year 2023 well it's an interesting one i still for some reason I think probably this is to do with, you know, the age you are when you start watch certain films, particularly around uh, uh, the age when you're, you know, quite impressionable and still sort of finding your feet. You're looking for references and things that you can call your own as well. Uh, so I, I still have a soft spot. Every time I see Enter the Dragon, it still sort of takes me back there. Um, but I always seem 
new things in it as well, which is which is quite surprising, really. I still find the movie completely captivating, particularly uh, Bruce Lee's performance, his energy, his versatility, the way he moves. Just there's something so cool and unique about him. There really isn't. You know, this film's 50 years old. You know, it was released nearly 50 years ago, 50 years ago in August. Um, there's no one, there's not been anyone like him before or since, really. And I'm saying that with 50 years worth of kung fu movies on top of that. Uh, I think even, you know, hardened martial arts fans, martial artists would agree that, you know, he was a pretty unique guy. Um, and yeah, I just can't think of many other people that you can compare him to. Mm. Um, now, the movie itself, I'm not going to, I cannot profess to say this is certainly not citizen kane you know this is not a great work <laughs> of uh, well. you know literature or anything is it you know it's a pulpy b movie that's that was done very much on on the cheap that warner brothers really didn't throw a lot of money behind you know they weren't too too sure about it, it themselves um the fact that we're still talking about it having this conversation it, it 50 years later is purely down to one reason and that is bruce lee you know we're under any with anyone else this movie i think would have been long long since forgotten i would i would imagine mm. sorry when you said about it being 50 years it just it occurred to me that when this is actually coming out it's about a couple of weeks away from the 50th anniversary i just did the math so there we go probably. yeah that's crazy the timing is perfect. <laughs> all planned all, all part, part of the plan, plan. Yeah. we're gonna edit that part out scott <laughs> yeah 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 uh that's yeah. fine <laughs> well fine well, Ben, I'm glad you still love it. It's clear that uh, it's one you hold near and dear to your heart. I, I'm i going to save me to last because I'm interested to hear what Cam has to say because I suppose you're both the two that have seen it before. I'm the fresh eyes. So Cam, what have you got? I loved watching this movie last night for the show. Um, I think it was interesting comparing like watching Bruce Lee now and having obviously been a huge fan of Jackie Chan, I think like the difference for me is kind of like the Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly thing, where it's like Fred Astaire, his whole goal in all these musicals was to make his dancing look effortless. Mm. And that's kind of like Bruce Lee. Like there's a coiled intensity. He's unstoppable. He'll take people down with one hit. It's like just he's like a machine. And you look at like Jackie Chan, he's more like the Gene Kelly, where his whole thing was, I want to show the work. I want to see people to see that I'm exhausted, that this is tiring, and that like, you know, I am taking hits and it's not easy. And, you know, Gene Kelly famously was like, the roll up his sleeves in all these musical numbers because he wanted to look like athletic, like this took work. And I think that's very much the case when I look at these two stars now in contrast to each other. And that's one thing I really loved last night about watching this movie was just seeing like how Bruce Lee, every shot of this movie, he understands the camera and how to come across in an incredibly iconic way. Like this is, to me, comparable to, you know, John Wayne or Clint Eastwood and like their best Westerns. You know, when they walk on screen, everyone's eyes is, are on them and the camera loves them and they know how to perform for the camera in a way that's so specific, but a skill that like very few have. And to me, like, what I love about this movie is, like, it is, like, in terms of its storytelling, it is a B-movie. Um, it's, you know, borrowing from various things we've seen. There's a lot of Bond, you know, crossover we'll, t I'm sure, talk about. But there's, like, an imagination to this movie. I find a lot of, say, like, the lesser martial arts movies, you're kind of 
waiting to get to the martial arts scenes, like the storytelling stuff can feel like sometimes a little bit of a slog. But here, there's so much wackiness and invention, and it feels very comic booky. I think at one point, you know, one of the characters said, Jim Kelly's character says of the villain, like, you belong in a comic book. But, like, this movie has the energy of a comic book. It's fun and vibrant. And so, like, even when there's not action scenes going on, I'm just, like, interested in the world of it and in the scale they create where they just, you know, have, like, the big villain party where everything's so colorful and there's something to see in every shot of the frame. Um, and I look at also, like, uh, when they show up and it's just, like, the camera sweeping over the entire grounds of all the various fighters meeting for this tournament. There's an imagination to the scale, I think, you know, Robert Klaus has made a movie that just visually is dynamic to look at, and it's paired very well with a star who knows how to hold the screen and is clearly a movie star. I Yeah, it, it's interesting uh, sort of seeing what they came up with here, because as Ben was saying, there's not a lot of budget behind this film. Like, there wasn't a lot of faith behind this film from the powers that be. It sounds like it was like a roll of the dice. Like, oh, we'll, we'll toss you this 850000 see what you can do. And lo and behold, they had a mega hit on their hands. I suppose for me, and I think I'm going to be the contrasting voice on this one a little bit, and I'm sorry to people who love Enter the Dragon. Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rain on this parade uh, just a wee bit. I can, Logging I, off. I can, I can hear the <laughs> tweets <laughs> tweeting in now. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't hate this film. This is not me saying I hate this film. I heard all about this film for the last you know, 20 odd years of my life or whatever. This is like the best martial arts film of, of all time. It's, it's wall-to-wall, like kick ass it's great and there are bits i liked about this film and that was actually a lot of the martial arts and sort of seeing uh bruce actually like flex and and do his thing and when he's when he's actually like kicking and punching and leading and sort of in charge of the screen i'm drawn towards it but there was a lot less of that than i was expecting coming into this film and so Mm. what i'm left with is like 10 15 minutes in between action sequences now, of course, it can't be an hour and 40 minutes of action that a film can't really do that. John Wick tries to do that, but even that has to have some dialogue at times. But I suppose I just wasn't really drawn into what was happening in between the scenes. I didn't really care about what was going on. I didn't really understand many people's motivations. Ben, you, you quite one of the things I wrote down, you pointed it out, actually, is there's not really any character journeys apart from john saxon's roper it's basically more about just sort of the spectacle that you're watching here and it's a gorgeous looking film the cinematography is wonderful i want to get into that i love the action sequences but it just left me a little bit cold and it's one of those things where like people build something up for you and it doesn't quite deliver for you i remember i watched i, I remember hearing about a fish called wanda and how that's the funniest film ever made and someone <laughs> someone died list- watching that film it was so funny <laughs> That they like, they burst their appendix from laughter and died. I'm like, this has to be funny, right? And I got like 20 minutes in, and I didn't laugh once. I thought, this is this is crap. What's going on? And I, I'm not saying this is crap, but I, I suppose my expectations weren't met. <laughs> it didn't burst my appendix. I didn't die from laughter watching this film. Uh, and so I just, I couldn't meet it on its vibe. Maybe I'm just not well versed in the genre of these films. Maybe that's just something. My, maybe that's a fault I'm having. But maybe as a but as a casual sort of viewer of spy movies, at least, I think it just didn't really grab me. Bombshell. <laughs> Hot take. Um, I don't know. I, I understand. I think any film that's probably, you know, it's had 50 years of, you know, I guess people, it's, it's a much lauded and praised and hyped film as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
its historic significance i think is is important to remember mm. as as well as the biggest martial arts film and the first hong kong american co-production um <clears throat> it's standing as bruce lee's only american film that he made as well there's a lot of legacy there's a lot of history tied up in in this movie uh, and a lot of emotion as well because this was a movie that really kick-started that whole kung fu boom in the 70s caused so many people to rush out and buy nunchucks and to take up karate and you know i think um fred weintraub says you know before Bruce Lee, you know, most American high streets didn't really, you know, you wouldn't have found like a gym or a, uh, a, a dojo there. And then as soon as Enter the Dragon comes out, that then becomes, you know, a huge, a huge thing. So I think it's the film's cultural significance is probably felt in ways that you probably don't even realize, <laughs> you know, but uh, in, in today that go beyond sort of the influence of it just being a movie as well. Um, you know, so many people were inspired by Bruce Lee as well as a result of, you know, being captivated, I guess, by this movie. Mm. But again, it's not a it's not a it's not a classic by any stretch of the imagination as a piece of storytelling. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I do. And, and also, I think the other thing to remember is just where we are, are at in the action film industry in 1973. It's really hard to to think back to a time when action movies really, particularly martial arts films, I mean, gosh, you know, Bruce Lee's sort of inventing the genre here uh, uh, at ar around this time uh, in being, because even in Hong Kong, you know, throughout the 60s, the Shaw brothers were the main, um, you know, producers of um Hong Kong martial arts films, but they were all based on the old literature of the past in which there was lots of sword fighting and sword play, the wuxia, they're known as wuxia films, martial chivalry. But that's the type of film where the heroes were on wires and flying around with swords. You know, it takes the early 70s to when, you know, Hong Kong starts to move more into kung fu cinema, as in actual, you know, hand-to-hand -hand combat. Um, that was still very much in its early stages as well. So if you compare, particularly if you compare the type of choreography that was going on, even in Hong Kong around that time, Bruce Lee is literally, his choreography is head and shoulders. And to this day, I will stand by this. If you look at Bruce Lee's fight choreography, maybe the Bob Baker fight in Fist of Fury, maybe if you look at his fight with Chuck Norris in Way of the Dragon, um, his fight choreography is is really fantastic. It still holds up today, I think. You know, it's very hard hitting. It was the first fight choreography where you looked at it, you know, and, and Bruce Lee was very specific at this. He brought his own people over to spar in his movies. Bob Wall, for instance, in Enter the Dragon was one of his students, someone he trained with, and Chuck Norris as well, who he knew very well. He brought these people over because he knew they could take the hits and nothing looks better in a fight scene where you have a little bit of contact. What does, why does John Wick look so good? Because Keanu Reeves is doing the moves. He's actually doing these judo throws. He's throwing people to the ground. He's actually, there's full contact or what can be perceived as full contact. Bruce Lee was introducing these these things into his fight choreography even back then in the early 70s is really something you didn't see very often. So I think that's why his choreography particularly 
resonates today. You know, it still has a real punch, has a real impact even today. You know, I'm reminded a little bit, my sister watched Citizen Kane uh, this past week and her takeaway was like, yeah, that was good, but, uh, you know, it, yeah. it didn't grab me. Sure. But it's like so much of what Citizen Kane is accomplishing was just been absorbed into the DNA of all movies that you kind of don't recognize what's special about it anymore. And I think there's a yeah. little bit of that with Enter the Dragon, but I can bring up something that actually may be a little helpful for you, Scott, which is like, this movie comes out in 73. Mm -hmm. The biggest studio action film of the year, also a Warner Brothers movie, I believe, is Magnum Force. Okay. And, you know, the second Dirty Harry movie, which we covered on the Patreon. Mm -hmm. And you kind of like look at what they are, you know, both hitting in terms of action choreography and just like speed. Like this movie to me feels very breezy and quick paced. And it feels like... When you compare it to an action movie now, it probably feels slow, but it was quicker than what was going on in the 70s otherwise in your, especially your studio movies. I, you know, listen, I, I, I didn't mean to come across like cold in my top line. <laughs> no, no. I don't, I'm not like <laughs> dropping bombs on this film. It, I just don't think it really clicked for me. I felt like it was missing something for what I was looking for. But I think you're probably spot on, Cam, with your analysis there that it's like, you know, I... I what I'm seeing in this is, I, yeah, I'm watching films now, and it's basically they've they've evolved from this. This is like the beginning, and and I'm now looking at the end of the equation. John Wick being a great example of that. And you know, yeah. I, it took me a long time as another example. And you know, Red Alert. It took me a long time to appreciate Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Sure, it's not a film I instantly warmed to. I had to watch it like three or four times before I was like, actually, you know what? It's slow as f, but it's doing something really great. And it took me a long time. Maybe this will take me a few more times uh, of, of Dragons to sort of get me on board. But I, I, on my initial two viewings, I watched this twice. I, I, I found lots to appreciate, which I'm going to take us to in a second. But as a, an overall product, I just felt like it left me a little bit cold. And I, I want to try and unpack why that is with you over this next couple of sections of discussion. But let's talk about things that we liked first. Ben, you've already kind of led us off with the sort of fight choreography there. But is there anything else you wanted to highlight? As to things to like about the movie? Yeah, just give us something. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure the whole film is your answer. Um, I will just say this as a caveat. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just gush over this movie throughout this whole podcast. But I will also just say that I am a realist as well in the sense that I actually think the film Bruce Lee would have made after this film would have been better. Mm. Um, the that's this you know obviously the sad reality of you know what what happened. Even the title Enter the Dragon, Bruce Lee, Warner Brothers. Then after this movie, approached Bruce Lee to then well Bruce Lee's argument was, and he fought tooth and nail to call the film Enter the Dragon. The film's original title on the script was Blood and Steel. Um, there was a huge debacle over that. And then the studio came back to Bruce Lee and said, we've got all the marketing execs together. We're going to call it Hans Island. And Bruce Lee was adamant, no, this film needs to be called Enter the Dragon or else I will not come back and do the sequel, which would be called Return of the Dragon. Mm. So he very much had the intention that this would be a longer running series. There would have been sequels and so on. So whether Enter the Dragon 2 would have been better than Enter the Dragon 1, who the hell knows? But all I, all I know is that he would have had the world at his feet after this film had been released. And he had offers coming in left, right and center, um, even that he was aware of, you know, during his lifetime opportunities to work closer with Shaw Brothers, 
uh, movies uh, to finish Game of Death. That would have completely changed as well. Um, the opportunity I read somewhere and seen someone's book to work with Alvis Presley, potentially do a movie with him because Alvis was a karate guy. So there was a uh, potential talk of Bruce Lee and Alvis doing a movie together. I mean, that just... That would not have been good, would it? <laughs> <laughs> There's no way. No way. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to solve that one. But yeah, it would have been something. It would have been a film. <laughs> it would It would have been a film. Yeah, definitely. Um so, you know, the opportunity, I think, you know, the, the opportunities that were open to him after this film would have been would have been great. It would have been amazing to have seen what, you know, what he could have achieved as well after after this movie. Well, it's a movie that, like, you realize what's special about him, at least I do when I watch the movie, and that, like, there are so many actors who can be an action hero. Like, they show up, they hit their marks, and they come across on screen really well. But I think what's really interesting about Bruce Lee is the way he's actually w- working in emotional performances through his action and one of my favorite bits is when he goes up against the scar-faced guy who was involved with um you know the murder slash suicide of his sister Mm -hmm. and when he kills him when he leaps on top of the guy's neck yeah and that could be played as just a quote-unquote badass kill in so many action movies but you watch like the emotion that comes entirely through bruce lee's face when he performs that act and like the kind of the moment of pause after it happens like, that's someone who's not just, I'm just here to hit my marks. Like, I love Van Damme movies um, quite a bit. Van Damme does not really bring, I find, that level of emotion to his action. And I think that's something really special. And another favorite moment I had of Bruce Lee's performance was when he has the snake. First off, the catching the snake sequence, incredible. The moment where he releases the snake into the booth and then just sits there looking very bored. Well... All that is, you know, taking place mm-hmm. is happening where the guys are scampering all over trying to get away from the snake and diving out the window. But like, what an interesting decision for Bruce Lee to just sit there looking very bored. That's not the sort of thing most actors would do, especially in their first Hollywood film. That's not the sort of thing you'd want. You want something that's a little more dynamic, a little more like showy. That is not what he does. And I think that's so cool. I I do love that moment, Cam, as well. And it actually points to a wider thing about Bruce Lee and his cockiness and his attitude, which he was like that in real life. I think we're, you know, no one can deny that. Um, But he brought that into his Hong Kong work. And it was something that the American producers were really sort of nervous about. I know in Bob Klaus's book, he apparently said to Bruce to try and think he said to, to get rid of that strut that he had Mm. in his Hong Kong movies because it, he, they felt that that wouldn't play too well, particularly as this sort of cool, you know, undercover. Well, he's a Shaolin monk, isn't he? But supposedly working for British intelligence, you know, this this idea of a James Bond figure probably wouldn't go around acting, you know, all um, uh, nonchalant about about these things and showing off. But um, it creeps into the performance there, and it does in that snake scene. It also does in the Bob Wall fight, where he just starts sort of teasing him. He brings the Muhammad Ali shuffled legs um, uh, in into that fight scene, and just his general demeanor and his attitude, you know, of who Bruce Lee was in person, does start to come out. And you know, contemporary action stars of that time were not like that you know they were a lot more stoic a lot more particularly in the in the spy films i'm sure we'll talk about that you know a lot more buttoned up shall we say um and bruce uh, exudes a certain confidence um 
that just wasn't prevalent, particularly in the action stars of, of the early 70s. Or even like the moment where he's fighting Han and Han like claws his face or whatever, and he like touches the blood and then licks his finger. Like you're, you're yeah. not seeing Clint Eastwood do that in one of his movies. No. <laughs> and that's the thing. All these things are so iconic now, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Well, just to sort of answer to Cam's point, I think the the seeing the emotion on his face was actually really interesting. And and you say about that choice with the snake is also fascinating. I I think there's a couple of other moments, like when he learns about the fate of his sister as well. He has like a subtle bit of acting going on there that really stood out to me that I was quite impressed with. I did the the guy with the scar on his face. I did write down in my notes as uh, Barry Gibb from the Bee Gees that he was fighting. <laughs> So uh, that that's he uh, didn't stay alive. He did not stay alive. <laughs> he did go ah 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 during the whole fight though. So uh, <laughs> yeah, but we, we should say that is that's Bob Wall, and he was uh, he and he sadly passed away. He only passed away last last year uh, in his early eighties. But he did appear on my I did interview uh, Bob Wall on the podcast. Wow. So uh, yeah, and you know he did have a lot of. Um, you know, very favorable things, I think, since Bruce's death, because they were so close. They mm. were training buddies from the early 60s. Well, uh, yeah, mid mid 60s. Um, that, you know, he was very close to Bruce and obviously worked with him on Way of the Dragon and Enter the Dragon as well. And, you know, throughout his, you know, all these years that Bruce hasn't been with us, he's always been a huge champion in supporting uh, Bruce and passing on that sort of positive message uh but yeah bob wall and he said to me a quote that i remember from that conversation do go back and check it out if you if you haven't heard it uh, yet uh bob wall said no one gets good uh without getting their ass kicked which I thought was a, a a good sort of uh uh, uh way to you know improve uh in life it's a good sort of motto to have and also it points to the fact that uh he was one of bruce lee's favorite uh punching bags mm. <laughs> he gets his ass kicked in way of the dragon and he certainly gets his ass kicked in uh enter the dragon <laughs> well it, yeah but just uh and and um i would just say like it was a great fight to watch but like I, and that's the stuff i really enjoyed about it firstly was just watching bruce work his magic like every fight I, I did a little poll throughout, like, what was my favorite fight? Because I thought it would be a question we'd ask later. Maybe we will. But I, most of the fights that he's in, Bruce Lee's in, it, it are tremendous. There's no, like, bad moment for him in terms of the action sequences. He, I can't take my eyes off him. He's so electric. And he, he feels like he's got that sort of Sean Connery tightly wound thing about him that he had for when he, Sean Connery was playing Bond as well. Like, you just don't know what he's capable of. There's so much like he's storing in him at all times. Well, at least the first couple Bond movies. Once Sean Connery show up in Diamonds Are Forever, you know what he's going to do. <laughs> he's escaping the moon buggy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I like I shouted out cinematography earlier. I just want to shout out the score. Yeah. Lalo Schifrin never lets you down. He's like, he, you know, him and Jerry Goldsmith are like my two favorite composers basically now from going through all these films over the last three years. And yeah, as soon as that like 70s funk hits when the credits start rolling, I'm like, yes, we're in for a very good time. And he doesn't let, like the entire film is just full of bangers that Schifrin's putting out. I absolutely love the score to this film. Did, did Mission Impossible score as well, of course. Yeah. Uh, spy, another spy connection. Um, yeah, he's, got, it, he's got quite a few, our Schifrin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it just adds you know, millions to the movie, really, doesn't it? Mm. You know, a good score can really uh, transport a movie. Uh, and this is a 
clear example of that fantastic music Leila Schifrin again that was an afterthought that was um uh in the 300 thousand dollars they put aside for post-production that was once they knew they had the rushes back and they knew they had something good warner brothers then suddenly found some more money to really you know put into the post-production and that's when Lalo schifrin comes in to 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 add the score which yeah just transforms the movie it's it's brilliant it's great And, and i mentioned the cinematography i just wanted to shout out there's some really cool like pov shots in this film I yep. don't know if that was a staple of the cinema at that sort of time where this was pushing boundaries, but like there's, it's. I mean, if you, if you haven't seen the film, folks, basically like it's it's exactly POV as you would think of it. Like you're seeing the opponent throwing punches at the lens and then like it's reacting to it. It's really well done. You're seeing both sides of the fight, but you're in the fight with them. I just think that was really wonderfully done. When you're talking about like the cinematography too, like you look at that mirror fight at mm-hmm. the end of the film, which... You know, very influential. John Wick uh, Chapter 3 uh, did a very similar sequence. But, like, you know, this would have been, like, viewed as something of a inexpensive B-movie by the studio. And you look at the ambition of pulling off that mirror sequence. If you want to have an easy cinematography assignment, don't set your entire sequence in a room full of mirrors. That is a nightmare. And they are paying homage to the Orson Welles film, Lady from Shanghai, which was a noir film from 1948. Orson Welles was viewed as one of the biggest virtuoso directors alive. And here you have this kind of down and dirty action movie and Robert Klaus directing it. Like, Creating a sequence that was, in, you know, inspired by one of the greatest visual filmmakers in the history of the medium. So to me, like, the level of ambition behind the cinematography is just astonishing. And you could just see how, like, you could have handed this same assignment to a different director and a different team, and you would get something that no one remembers. But, like, there's, like, real magic going on here. And I think, honestly, there's a lot of limitations with budget, but mm-hmm. sometimes that's better because... They're kind of hands off when the budget's low, like they are less invested. Had they given him way more money, I don't know that you would have gotten a movie that has this level of just creative ingenuity under um, very often tough circumstances. And I think it connects beautifully to a film that comes out exactly one year later, which is James Bond's attempt at a kung fu movie, The Man with the Golden Gun, where you get a mirror sequence very much not quite the same as this, but you know, definitely riffing off of it. Yeah, and you also get Bond at the like. I think it was it karate school in that one. I think. Yeah, he's at a karate school. There's a they do an exhibition for him, and then he decides to beat everyone up because he's Bond. Just kicks the guy in the head as he's uh, <laughs> uh, bowing over. But, uh, which Bruce Lee apparently was supposed to be in that as well, or there was rumors that Bruce Lee was um, was being. Could you imagine? Yeah, yeah, was was going to join the world of Bond. Yeah, that would have been incredible. It would have been incredible, and there's the bit at the start of this movie where um, he's talking to like uh, like a student and says you know never take your eyes off your opponent even when you bow and that's something that uh the bond film one year later has bond kicking the guy in the head when the guy doesn't uh keep his eyes on bond so yeah. like you can definitely see the influence and you can also see um this movie as i said like under a million dollar budget and look at the phenomenal action work it has going on and then look at the man with the golden gun, which cost a lot more money, and compare the martial arts sequences between the two. <laughs> I don't want to, Cam. I don't want to compare them. <laughs> yeah. Roger Moore, not a virtuoso. <laughs> no. Um, well, I, I, maybe this is a good time, because I, I was going to put it at the end, but we're talking about it. The the Bond and spy movie connections of this film, before maybe we go to sort of down to this film. Like, there's There's so much. 
Yeah, and I'll just say this was actually my like was the genre right. mashup of this movie because I think when you go into a likes on Into the Dragon, everyone's gonna say Bruce Lee, right? Because mm-hmm. it's that's what makes the movie so cool. But like this movie's ability to blend like the martial arts film with like a spy film, I think it does it incredibly well. Yeah. It does not feel like the gears like grinding to like make these two things work simultaneously. When you have this character Han, you know the villain. The way he reveals like his lab to um, the John Saxon character, Roper, it goes full Bond. He's mm-hmm. walking around literally stroking a cat. And I was like, oh, my God. And you've got him, you know, with interchangeable hands. So you have like an iron hand like Dr. No at one point. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, blades and claws by the end. Very like mix of Dr. No, but also a lot of the, blo- uh, the Bond sort of adversaries he'd go up against. Um, you know, like the henchmen. And I mean the whole lair sequence is so much fun and it just feels like it has taken this pivot into kind of like your bond spy film but does it so seamlessly that doesn't feel jarring to me it feels like a natural extension as to where we were going even though when you break the movie down into sections it feels bizarre that we wound up there it feels completely out of place, but like it, it absolutely works. And there's more like connections too. Hans Island is Spectre Island. Like for anyone who's is following the sort of Spectre story, like that's the training school that Spectre go to. I wouldn't be surprised if Han ran the Spectre Island. We just never saw him in the Bond films. I could totally see them being connected. Well, did you notice also that they set up that it was like in uncertain territory, mm-hmm. like between borders of various nations? And it's like, well, that's something they pulled in No Time to Die. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Spot on. And like, you know, we mentioned the lair. You've also got like an M with Braithwaite. He turns up and, you know, a British spy master given the exposition, which we love in our spy films. So, yeah, a, a ton of connectivity. But I suppose, Ben, I'll throw it to you as, as the sort of, I always say spy movie novice, James Bond fan, but, you know, comparatively speaking, novice. Um, how do you find the spy connections and does it work for you in, on a, in a sort of a spy lens? It's fascinating, isn't it? Because um, I think it does. I think it does work personally. However, I know that that was obviously that was in the first iteration of the script. So that first script that Michael Allen, produ- Allen produces is very much all the Bond elements are in are in that. Even to the extent that Bruce Lee's character was supposedly. A, a spy working for the British government. So that was clearly not going to wash for Bruce Lee, given the fact that he is, you know, a uh, Hong Kong action star. Bruce Lee is in a tricky position here where he has to make a movie that's going to appeal to a burgeoning audience in the West and in Hollywood. Um, but also he's he's a chinese star he needs he needs to look after his his local audience as well and he is not going to do that if he is representing the british who are the colonizers of of hong kong and particularly you know we're following some pretty heavy political rioting that was going on in hong kong at the time uh, bruce lee's previous films were very nationalistic they promoted um you know, uh, the plight of the Chinese against oppression, particularly Fist of Fury, where the the villains were the Japanese. Um, To see him play a spy working for the Brits would have been definite no-no. So Bruce Lee had these arguments with Michael Allen. 
And a lot of the disputes around the script came about the origins of his actual character, which then he managed to create. And that's where the 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 background of his character being a Shaolin monk comes from. So he is being recruited mm. by British intelligence, but he is not a spy. He is an expert in martial arts. He's aware of Han's tournament. Han is a renegade Shaolin monk. Uh, and in order to restore, I guess, Chinese dignity and uh, national pride, he needs to go and take revenge because this former Shaolin monk guy has just gone absolutely bananas and is cooking up heroin and injecting it into, uh, you know, slave girls, <laughs> whatever he's doing in his little underground lair. Um, and also he adds this revenge element where his sister is killed. So it's a personal journey for him. And also one, you know, the final line, you've offended my family, you've offended the Shaolin temple. That is his motivation. It's not working for the British. It's not um, uh, to hunt down for this guy because the British have, have sent him to do that. So so that was a really important sort of subtle shift in the script that Bruce Lee made in order to protect his his following back home, essentially. Though it didn't really help because Enter the Dragon actually did not do very well in Hong Kong. I don't I I, I think his earlier films, um, you know, the box office was much more this is one of his least successful films uh in 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 Hong Kong, which again is quite telling as well. Right. Yeah, I think wasn't that kind of the case with Jackie Chan too, where like his American films didn't do particularly well in Hong Kong? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's interesting because it's it's hard to appease different uh, audiences as well. I I suppose. Um, and Bruce Lee always had this this trouble during his life. Is uh, you know, he was Eurasian born. He was born in San Francisco, but obviously his heritage, he has European heritage. He was. Uh, Chinese. He was raised in Hong Kong. He lived most of his adult life in America. So he was constantly battling, I guess, between these two parts of his life in many ways. You know, he, there were times when he would be in Hong Kong and he felt more American and out of step and out of, uh, uh, you know, off kilter. And then he'd be in America where he was being told he was too Chinese. That he wasn't getting work because of uh, uh, you know, because that's that's what they were saying. You know, he was he was uh, too Chinese. So it was really it was it was a battle that he constantly faced uh, th- throughout throughout his life. Hmm. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents, keeping the lights on at Spy Hard HQ ain't cheap, and frankly, nor is feeding the school of attack piranhas. So we need your help. Roger that, Scott. Only at the Spy Hard's Patreon. Can you gain access to exclusive shows like Agents in the Field, which tackles non-spy films starring your favorite spy icons, and The Debrief, where we channel our inner solitaires and predict how the big spy movie news of today will impact tomorrow. So make like a Treadstone agent and activate your Patreon membership at patreon.com slash spyhards today. Cam, tell the people what we have in our sites this week. Scott, it's the end of the month, so that means it's time for the latest episode of The Debrief. This month we're going to talk about Secret Invasion. We'll have the series finale to talk about at this point, as well as Christopher Nolan Bond rumors and so much more. It's going to be a ton of fun. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy chinks. 
Well, I, I think it's time uh, we transfer over to the uh, the downsides, the things we didn't like. Uh, I'm guessing that Cam and Ben's entries in this saga will be very quick, and I'll be talking the entire time. <laughs> but I'm going to put you on the spot, though, Ben. Is there something yeah. you could critique about Enter the Dragon? Oh, golly. It's a tough one, isn't it? I mean... I think the one thing I remember thinking maybe when I first saw it was probably similar to what you said around, um, I mean, it's an action movie, but, you know, and it really ramps up towards the end, but it's not wall-to-wall action, Mm. you know, and there are slower parts to the the movie. Um, That's why I think a lot of, like, really hardcore Bruce Lee fans probably, and I've heard this quite a lot, would favour a movie like probably Fist of Fury, potentially, um, if you were to say, what's your favourite Bruce Lee movie? Um, I just think he's so, I mean, he's so damn cool in all of his movies. But um, yeah, there's some really iconic, great fight scenes in Fist of Fury. There's some great Bruce Lee moments in uh, in, in this movie as well. It's, it's hard for me to actually pinpoint something that I would say that I didn't like about the movie. Um, so yeah, so I'll take a beat on that one. I'll hand it. I'll hand back. <laughs> it's okay because you you did kind of highlight something that I I briefly spoke on earlier, yeah. which is sort of the the bits in between of the highlights. I would say like the moments in between, the scenes of exposition, the scenes of moving the story along. You know, I I was I love watching the tournament and actually like getting on with the tournament, and seeing the exhibitions in front of hand. That's all great. But I'm not sure I want to spend 10 minutes watching Jim Kelly's Williams getting off with eight girls. Don't need that. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't. It didn't add anything to the film for me, except for the cool sort of score that went along with it. So like that's yeah. kind of the yeah. one thing I had. So I suppose I'm just that's maybe where you're coming from, and especially from your first viewing, at least. Maybe you appreciate that a bit more now, having seen it 30 times. But yeah. I think you're right. And I think also, I'd say, I mean, this maybe this is a disappointing thing is that, you know, there are there are other things that are pulling focus away from Bruce Lee in this movie. Uh, and as you say, yes, whether it's the Jim Kelly, whether it's the backstory with uh, John Saxon, whether it's the other conflicting elements, I think those earlier movies that Bruce Lee made, he is such the center of attention mm. uh, that you and and it's a Bruce Lee film. That's what you want. You just want to see the guy kicking ass taking names, just doing his thing. Uh, and I would say if that is maybe the downside of Enter the Dragon is that there's almost not enough of him there. <laughs> you yeah. know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you could always have more of that. You know? yeah. So yeah, I'd probably say that. Um, and like the Jim, the, the, the Williams character doesn't really get any sort of background apart from sort of the introduction scene. You don't really know why he's there particularly or what his goals or objectives are, apart from, I suppose, winning the tournament. Although, I don't know what you one gets when you win the tournament because that's never set up either. It's just sort of who even wins the tournament. I don't know if that's yeah, ever the viewers. The viewers win. The, the viewers. Tournament. We all won. <laughs> we all won. Uh, Cam, I'll throw it to you. What about you? Yeah, I was going to say like in terms of like the supporting characters getting a lot to do. I guess it would bother me more if they were boring to me. But I found like Jim Kelly and John Saxon were giving such kind of odd and quirky performances that I was on board for it. Mm-hmm. But we also brought up what my dislike is and it's something that's so common to kind of exploitation films of the era which is like the female characters have a real rough go of it uh in this film i mean you get um you know that bruce lee's 
sister character gets at least a big action scene, but she is, you know, going to be the victim of sexual violence basically over the course of her introduction. It's a great scene though. Great scene. Love it. Great scene. Fantastic action scene where she has some agency in terms of where that is going. So I give them some points for that. But like when you get to like prostitution Island and it's all these women like hooked (laughs) on drugs and they are just like playing up like, all these guys like, oh, I get how many women? And you're like, wait, you just told us these are all women who are being like hooked on drugs downstairs. Like that's pretty unsettling. So, so common though with these types of movies of this era. Also with black exploitation films as well. Um, I mean, I give them points for making it weird because uh, there's the fight with Jim Kelly where he gets like thrown through like the wall and there's like the drug room and these women have like bizarre like heart makeup on their face and they're all cackling while he gets killed and i'm like that's surreal and odd but in terms of like the movie just wants you to kind of like be horrified at what Mm. the villain's doing but at the same time completely ignore it when it comes to our heroes well firstly we all know where cam is going on holiday this year (laughs) (laughs) no no judgments here all right cam you do your thing You stabbed that passport, buddy. Uh, no, I totally... It, it is It is a weird thing that there's like a moral implication here that's never really dealt with. But I, I think that just happens a lot with films around this era, especially the 60s as well. And this is sort of a, totally. a byproduct of the 60s. James Bond never really took a look at what he was doing until Timothy Dalton came along, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also you've got um, Anna Capri as Tanya, who's kind of like the, the madam who's overseeing this whole operation. Mm-hmm. Um, like she's pretty fun in the movie, but like they give her no ending. They just cut to her like dead on the ground at the end. And I was like, wait, what happened? (laughs) Yeah. I feel like she's really underserved here. It's a real shame. It's like, are they building her character up? Oh no, she's dead. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, it's a real, it is a real shame that yeah. And all the, yeah, all the female, um, roles in this film are pretty yeah it's um and it is it is very much a yeah it's a product of its time and you're absolutely right you could label the same thing to those early bond films as well mm-hmm. oh yeah uh, yeah yeah but know. also you've yeah. got like betty chung is like mei ling who's like the agent they actually have embedded on the island and you look at like how little she even gets to do and it's like yeah. that's a pretty important character in theory yeah absolutely there's a really interesting golden harvest movie that they made after this that was one of the films bruce lee was going to make with george lazenby and you should track this out and definitely give this one a look it's called stoner do you know this film stoner no george lazenby so angela mao who plays uh, bruce lee's sister in enter the dragon so she's the one does that wonderful fight scene but then kills herself with the with the with the glass she steps into the bruce lee role and that's really interesting Hong Kong uh, kung fu movie where they're sort of fighting crime together. It's George Lazenby and Angela Mao. Very dated, very of its time. Um, but again, I think the fact that you have Angela Mao with this agency and actual, you know, more of a rounded character. I mean, her own films that she made around this time in Golden Harvest are really quite interesting when you look at. The types of roles, particularly that were afforded to to women around that time. I mean, she was very much, you know, the sort of defiant hero. She's kicking ass. She's like leading the dojo into battle. Uh, and all of her uh, films around this period um, 
you know, really quite, um, I guess, sort of forward looking in, in many ways. So, yeah, and I'd certainly check out some of her work that she did in, in the Golden Harvest years, particularly Stoner. Not seen that for a while, but I'm sure, you know, that would be a really interesting movie to, to review and to check out. I, I reckon. That sounds like a Patreon film if I ever did hear one. Definitely. Um, <laughs> well, I'm just going to then just say my quick dislike that no one's really spoken about too much. And that is the dubbing. Yeah. Now, I really can't stand dubbing when it's done in the Bond films around this time in the 60s where you get the Bond girls are often overdubbed with... Because usually they would get, like, European models play some of the Bond girls and then they would get, you know, American or British uh, actors to do the voices instead. In this film, the entire film is overdubbed. And it was recorded with, you know, with that in mind, basically, from what I can tell from my research... If that's what they were doing at the time in this sort of cinema, absolutely fine. I can understand why they stuck with that. But as someone who's viewing it in 2023, especially when the lips don't match a lot of the time, and we've even had someone on the show when we were speaking about Ghost in the Shell who actually does dubbing as as her job. And I know the efforts that go into doing overdubs. I understand how hard it can be. But when it's done badly, it really just sort of annoys me, I have to mm. say. like I, I can't get past that, so it becomes comical. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and when they're yeah. trying to deliver like anything particularly emotional, it, it just like it, it triggers like a funny bone in my in my elbow, yeah. I guess, or whatever, and I just can't really take it seriously. Uh, I, I guess it's no big deal for some people, but it, it does jump out for me. What What's interesting about the dubbing as well is um, so Shet Keen, who plays Han, um, it was a sort of needs must situation with him because his English just wasn't quite there. Mm-hmm. So he is actually dubbed by Key Luke very famous um uh chinese actor who appeared in a lot of uh, american movies he was master po the blind um monk in the kung fu tv series mm. wonderful booming voice so when he talks that's you can tell that's not coming from checking um but equally also dubbing was was part of the course particularly in uh the shaw brothers and a lot of the movies that were made in hong kong at that time just because of the congestion the general noise mm. there was you know it wasn't you know the audio that it would pick up just just through the nature of filming in hong kong um but also uh the dubbing was so they could sell their films more easily obviously to different international markets sure. they could overdub different dialects and so on and so forth so that was common practice in hong kong at that time to film with no sound so all all those old kung fu movies are done you know with no sound it's really funny that even continued into the 80s and you know a lot of the western actors that would appear in hong kong movies because they filmed with no sounds, they would be, they would, you know, be made to do dialogue scenes and then just say random words so that it looked like their mouths were moving. Right. And they would say, well, we're going to add the words on afterwards. So it doesn't really matter. So a lot of those Cynthia Rothrock films, she'll just be saying like rhubarb and custard over and over or whatever, <laughs> or just counting to 10. A lot of actors just counted to 10. Um, and then they would add, add add the dialogue on on afterwards. So yeah, it was common practice at the time. I I, I totally understand, and that it's just something that sort of bumped me. But I guess I'm not well versed in that, so I I can leave that where that is. I suppose. then before we go to the knock list, it's sort of final notes time. I had one note that I'm just going to leave us on, and I realised during my second viewing of the film where I had the first experience of Enter the Dragon. And this is a reference that will play to a portion of our audience listening and will probably play to Ben because we're about the similar age. 
Yeah. Cam will have no idea what I'm about to say. Okay. But my earliest reference to this film comes from a song called Do You Really Like It? by DJ Pied Piper and the Master of Ceremonies from the late 90s, early noughties garage scene here in the UK. Because the song yeah. starts with Enter the Dragon. And then they have a video which is all themed by Enter the Dragon. I went back and watched it today and I was like, oh yeah. And the lyrics don't really play anything into it. But it's actually still a really good tune if anyone liked Garage yeah. in, in that sort of time period. That's a banger. Yeah, great song. Yeah. Great song. Absolutely, it, absolutely. I do really like it, and it is wicked. Um, so, Cam, I'm sorry you were left out on that one. That's fine, that's fine. I feel like you're left out for many things. It's my turn. Okay, I'll send you the song <laughs> after. You can let us all know what you okay. think of it. Uh, but uh, but yeah. uh, Ben, Cam, any notes you have left? Ben? Well, I mean, I guess I've probably gushed enough about the movie other than to say, you know, this is... this. You know, the 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 impact, I think, that this film had in obviously sparking the big, you know, the Kung Fu boom um, is is really quite it's sort of the big bang, really. It sort of starts this whole this whole craze that we're that we're talking about. It is it is important to see this film within the context, I guess, of when it was made. Um, I would just add that, you know, if you. If you haven't seen it and you want to see what all the fuss is about, you know, Bruce Lee is someone who, you know, is so iconic. And I do think that he's someone who continues to resonate. I mean, we're 50 years later, we're still talking about this guy and they're still making movies about him as Mm -hmm. well. Ang Lee is just about to make a new biopic um, about Bruce Lee. So there is an appetite out there. It's as if his story resonates a lot more nowadays, more around particularly the uh attention that's been paid in more recent years to accurate representation and what it means to be i guess a uh minority working within the industry particularly within hollywood and trying to get those voices heard the battles that bruce lee was facing in the 60s and 70s are still being faced today and although we are making you know a lot of progress in that world it's amazing staggers me that bruce lee achieved what he did achieve in just 32 years you know, he was very young when he died. Mm-hmm. Um, look at what he did actually manage to achieve against all the odds. Um, you know, I think that's partly why the film is so revered and why it is so significant, really. Far less than I have. <laughs> and you can even look at, you know, Shang-Chi. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the Marvel film opened in theaters, and that was a comic book character created to try to capture the, um, the popularity of Bruce Lee. So yeah, you can see that, like yeah. the influence of Bruce Lee just continues to this day and is being carried now by Disney is putting out multi-million dollar blockbusters inspired by him. So that's yeah. very cool. Um, a couple final notes I had. Um, the sequence where they are darting apples out of the air was very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I also had, this movie does not like New Zealanders very much. <laughs> <laughs> no. The New Zealander fighter is just like a total jerk picking on the guy carrying oranges on the boat and then just gets his like butt handed to him in like the first fight. And there's the scene where there's kind of the gambling comedy bit going on with John Saxon gambling. Mm. And there's a gentleman with a Hitler stash. Interesting style choice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he had a look. He was clearly doubling down on it. <laughs> it's brave. He'd invested by that point. He's like, I'm not shaving it now. Yeah. Yeah. This is my look. No. And just the other thing I had was I referenced earlier that like the movie Mortal Kombat was like a big deal for me growing up. 
you can map Mortal Kombat on top of this movie. It is so close. Even, you know, Bolo is very much like the Goro role in the film. He has like a, in this case, it's a kick in the nuts, but in the Mortal Kombat, it's a punch in the nuts is the finishing move. The whole thing lines up very closely. And John Saxon is very much Johnny Cage. Yeah, yeah. Well, the whole the, there's a there's a very rich you know subgenre of martial arts films that are just based around tournaments. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd be hard pressed to find one before Enter the Dragon, but that's a direct link that goes through to yes, Mortal Kombat, but Bloodsport is a is a tournament movie as well. That's a very iconic um, you know Jean Claude Van Damme movie, the Undisputed series. You know the tournament movie was huge in the '90s and all those straight to video uh you know movies uh that i love but uh are broadly terrible uh <laughs> so um yeah you know this 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 very much you know is 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 describing it as the big bang for martial arts movies so much you know springs from from this movie yeah and also video games street fighter mortal kombat totally. all those games yeah totally yeah well yeah. i think it's time to answer the big question that we tackle here every week on the show is Enter the Dragon making the knock list? Now, Cam, as we have a guest, just walk Ben and the listeners through what the knock list is. Yes, the knock list is our need to see official classics of the Spy Hearts canon, a very tortured acronym. But every week after talking about a movie, we decide if it belongs on the list of the all-time great spy films. So some movies that have made it on. You've had kind of like your lofty dramas like, you know, Three Days of the Condor. But then you've also had Bond films like Goldfinger, Casino Royale. Uh, 2006 and then even some you know curiosities along the way like the first uh, flint movie or the shersha ronan film uh, hannah good movie yes so it's a it's it's a diverse list but uh it is quite uh particular when it comes to our voting so it, it is a list of the best spy movies ever of all time but we, yeah we have had some outside ones ghost in the shell is an anime but that made the list. Uh, you know, if you take it from a spy lens, I think it's a very fascinating film to dive into. So let's talk about it. Knock list time. We have three votes between us. Could go any way. Ben, I have a feeling I know your answer for this one, but I'm going to pitch it to you anyway. Is Enter the Dragon one of the greatest spy films of all time? Wow. Now, we, I will preface that we've agreed this is a spy film, so you haven't got to like fight for it as a spy film. It's, it's whether you think this is one of the greats. Gosh, well. You know, far be it for me. You guys are the spy ex- spy movie experts here, so you know I'm very much a novice in into into this world. Um, we're agreeing that this movie fits within the spy genre. Mm-hmm. I would say within the spy action genre, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a better action martial arts spy film that's so specifically uh pulls on i guess the sort of tropes of the spy genre i'd be hard pressed i'd probably need to think of a more of any martial arts movie that does it as well as enter the dragon so gosh i don't know yeah i think it's a strong i think it's up there you know it's a pretty good uh good spy movie okay um yeah yeah no, no, you, you you are on yeah you, you you are standing firm and you are you know on the right track because you've been saying you love this film throughout this whole episode so that's a yes it's all sort of playful cam you're up yay or nay is it making the knock list scott you and i spend a lot of time talking about 50 plus year old spy movies that Mm -hmm. no one remembers Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. is one that the world continues to remember it's a huge yes for me not just for the legacy of the movie but just honestly 
we previously talked about like Kiss of the Dragon, mm. right? And like I look at the comparison between the two and what they're setting out to achieve. And this one does it so much more. Like whether it's just the central performance of Bruce Lee, but just like the iconography of the movie, the visual imagination. Um, I thought like the pacing was very strong. The movie just sucks me in every time I see it. So it's a huge yes for me. Okay. This is one of those weird ones mm-hmm. where like I'm just voted out basically now. So it's two <laughs> yeses. Uh, but I will chuck my two cents in. I completely agree with what both of you have said. Cam, if you compare this to Kiss of the Dragon, obviously it's not, I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, streets, uh, whatever the saying is, it's far better than, you know, it, it's, it's much, much better than that film. Totally get that. Ben, in terms of it being like, we've agreed it's a spy film and it's definitely a film that you love. So I completely get your perspective. I don't think it works for me personally speaking i don't think it was a, a home run that a lot of people say it is i'm not trying to be the contrarian i'm not trying to be that guy that's doing the hot takes on twitter i don't care about any of that it just intrinsically when i watched it i didn't feel that sort of it, for me the knockless is very much a like i feel it in my gut when i say yes or no and for me mm. it, it wasn't quite there it was very close like i understand why thunderball made the knockless but i didn't vote for it yeah. I understand why this is about to make the knock list, even though I didn't vote for it. So I'm happy it's sure. on there. It just didn't do it for me. I'm just glad Ben was in there to sort of like help vote <laughs> it on because it could have been a very big yeah. disappointment for other people if I if it just been the two of Cam and I. Well, you should throw it over to your listeners, see what they what their their thoughts are on this one because it is it's a kind of hybrid movie, isn't mm-hmm. it? Really, it's there's it yeah. falls on a lot of different uh, genre tropes, I would say. So. Um, um yeah yeah no for sure i mean we we love to hear from you guys if you think we're wrong or we're right let us know on social media but there you go folks two yeses one no the dossier is complete and father's classified enter the dragon is making the knock list everyone else on this podcast is very happy right now that's right i'm I'm not unhappy to be fair i'm glad it's there i'm glad there is some representation for a martial arts film on the knock list because it's added another sort of wing mm-hmm. it's great and I'm, I'm glad it's there i'm glad uh bruce lee is on the knock list how how cool is that awesome mm-hmm. how cool is that so ben i want to thank you for taking the time joining us on the show talking about one of your favorite martial arts films i want to hear from you the listeners want to hear from you the kung fu movie guy where can people find it and what have you got coming up on the podcast Thank you, Scott. Yes, and thank you, Cam. Thanks for inviting me on. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat about Enter the Dragon. Um, I normally just bore my friends in the pub around this uh, <laughs> subject, so it's great to, uh, <laughs> great to actually do it on a, on a podcast. Um, yeah, so uh, what are we up to now? Season seven will continue. So just uh, having a little break at the moment while sort of um, uh, put the feelers out there for more guests. We're up to 90 episodes of the podcast now, as you say, been running for quite a few years. Uh, it's available in all the usual places that you get podcasts, so Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so on. Uh, the website's kungfumovieguide.com. That's uh, the best place to go to. That's where I um, sort of regularly update latest film reviews and any thoughts on the genre go up uh, there. And we're on all the social medias as well, so Twitter, at KF Movie Guide, we're on Instagram and Facebook as well. At Kung Fu Movie Guide, uh, yeah, give us a follow, check out the the show, give us a like, star rating, all that good stuff that you say. Uh, all of that's um, super great uh, to uh, uh, help to promote the show as well. So yeah, thank you all so much again. Yes, and thank you for inviting me on. 
No, it's been our pleasure. And, you know, there'll be links to all of that in the show notes below for everyone wants to go and check that out. And we will be tagging in Ben basically on social media wherever we're blasting this out. So you'll be able to click on the links through that to find the two. I will just say before I let you go, is there an episode of the podcast you could recommend people go and check out? And we'll put a link to that in the show notes below as well. Sort of a one that connects to this maybe a little bit. Definitely, yeah. So Bruce Lee obviously is featured quite heavily on the Kung Fu Movie Guides uh, since its inception. Um, it's always, I mean, Bruce Lee, I just find endlessly fascinating as a you know character, as an actor, as a martial artist and his life story. So I've been lucky enough to speak to quite a few people who knew him, including his daughter. So Shannon Lee, I'd definitely check out that episode. Uh, chatting to Shannon was was awesome. Bob Ward is actually in Enter the Dragon. He plays O'Hara, passed away last year. Um, go and check that episode out. Uh, who else? I've had Bruce Lee's goddaughter, Diana Lee Asanto, has been on the show. So wow. that's uh, Diana Asanto's daughter. Diana Lee Asanto actually uh, enjoying a bit of uh, uh, resurgence at the moment after her wonderful um, performance in The Mandalorian. So... Um, definitely go and check uh, that episode out. There was a compilation episode that I did when Bruce Lee turned, would have turned 80. Um, so go and check that out because that's more of a compilation of various guests that I've had on the show over the years. So lots of actors who now make martial arts movies who are inspired by Bruce Lee's movies. Mm. So it's a nice little compilation, I guess, of um, the legacy that Bruce Lee uh, you know, continues and continues to inspire, you know, future generations, whether they're martial artists or actors or people entering the, the industry. Um, you know, Bruce Lee's story still continues to resonate quite powerfully with with people. Um, so definitely go and check out that episode. I think it's just called Bruce Lee at 80. Um, and uh, yeah, various other episodes as well. Uh, do do check out the check out the show. Well, I think the uh, the Bruce Lee 8 sounds like the perfect entry point for everyone listening, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes below. Definitely. But Ben, one last time, thank you for coming on Spy Hards. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat about Enter the Dragon. It is making the knock list. And as such, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. I want to thank Ben Johnson once again from the Kung Fu Movie Guide for coming over and bringing his expertise on the show. But I'm about Kung fu out now, Cam. I feel like I need a holiday. What have we got coming up next week? Well, you said it, Scott. I need a holiday as well, and we are going to be in Las Vegas. So there won't be a normal episode out, but we will have a very exciting Spy Master interview for all of you with Ivana Milicevic, who played Valenka, Le Chifre's accomplice and girlfriend in 2006's Casino Royale. Yeah, never mind Safin. She was the uh, the one who almost put James Bond away all the way back in Casino Royale. That's right. Yes, yes. There you go, folks. So yeah, Cam and I might be away, but we've still got plenty of spy jinx for you. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to tune in next week as we speak with Miss Ivana Milicevic and discuss her work on 2006's Casino Royale. And if you like what you heard on this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you're listening. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, we'll be too busy looking cool. (laughs) 